the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23, of course, which along with Psalm 27 of the Psalms appointed for today, Thursday, November the 11th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. I appreciate it very much. Happy Veterans Day to all those out there who are veterans. Um, I appreciate your service very much. One of the most moving things that I ever get to be involved in in ministry is when I do a funeral that includes an honor guard, and I'm always deeply moved by that and I always feel sort of um, regret, I guess the best word for it, that I didn't serve myself. I know so many people who, who have and who are serving today, and I appreciate all of you very much. <clears throat> So we're in today, we're, we're moving towards the end of this season of time. We're only about two and a half weeks from uh, Advent, which is shocking to me, but there we are. <laughs> so we're, we're looking now at the book of First Maccabees, and the Maccabees are a group of people who uh, preserved Judaism in some ways. The, the show Masada that was on many years ago now, you'd have to be kind of old like me to remember that. Um, tells the tale, and Hanukkah uh, tells the this is the is the holiday that came out of the Maccabean period. It's not in the Bible. The it's in what's called the Apocrypha. These are books that the Church decided years and years, or not years and years ago, but but thousands of years ago, uh, belonged not in the canon of Scripture, but were there for edification. So doctrines not established by any of these things, but, they're, but they are books that the church has said uh, don't rise quite to the level of Scripture, but they do, however, um, stand in, in a place where the, it's recommended reading for Christians, I guess is the best way to say it. So occasionally these things show up in our readings in the Anglican world. And so what we're going to get today is kind of a history of um, how the Greeks, after the fall of Al- after the death of Alexander the Great, how the Greeks dealt with the Jews and what caused the problem there. So we're talking about in the in the like 150-ish BC period of time. So after Alexander of Macedon, the uh, Alexander the Great, the son of Philip the Great, had come from the land of Katim and defeated Darius, the king of the Persians and the Medes. So remember, Darius is the one who who sent the Jews back and provided for them to, to, to uh, rebuild the walls and the temple. So he was defeated by Alexander the Great, and who succeeded him as king, in addition to his position as king of Greece. So he was king over the Persian and Median Empire, as well as the Greek Empire. He engaged in many campaigns, captured strongholds, and executed kings. In his advance to the ends of the earth, he plundered countless nations. When the earth was reduced to silence before him, his heart swelled with pride and arrogance. He recruited a very powerful army, and his provinces, nations, and rulers were conquered by him. They became his tributaries. However, when all this had been accomplished, Alexander became ill, and he realized that his death was imminent. Therefore, he summoned his officers, nobles who had been 
brought up with him from his youth, and he divided his kingdom among them while he was still yet alive. Then in the twelfth year of his reign, Alexander died. After that, his officers assumed power in the kingdom, each in his own territory. They all put on royal crowns after his death, as did their heirs who succeeded them for many years, inflicting great evils on the world. From these, there sprang forth a wicked offshoot, Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus. Previously, he'd been a hostage in Rome, and he began his reign in the 137th year of the Greeks. So they've, they've been in charge now, this, this Greco-Roman Empire, for the last 137 years. And so now comes this Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and the name itself was even offensive. I mean, people hated Antiochus Epiphanes. <laughs> Um, in those days, there emerged in Israel a group of renegades who led many people astray, saying, let us enter into an alliance with the Gentiles around us. These would have been the ones who were sort of known as Herodians in the day of Jesus. They're the people who said, let's, let's make an accommodation here. Let, let's enter into an alliance with them. And, and so many disasters have come upon us since we separated ourselves from them. So, so let's get under their protection well, you're under the protection. You're under the covenant protection of God. But they, they said, nope, let's do this. And their proposal received great popular support because it's easier, right? And when some of the people immediately thereafter approached the king, he authorized them to introduce practices observed by the Gentiles. Therefore, they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to Gentile custom. And the problem there is is that you've got the, the Kohen, the priesthood, who has been co-opted by this movement, and, and now the in the gymnasium is where you train for physical activity. And I, I belong to a gym, but the main difference is I don't go there naked and engage in these things. There was It was always seen as a hotbed for things like homosexuality, for instance. That's the way the Jews would have viewed this, is, is there's a dignity to the body that the Greeks didn't see in the same way. They gave the body great dignity and honor, while the the Jews practiced a, a much more um, austere form of that. They, they, they were not there to display their bodies for the reasons that the Greeks were. And so that it's the temple of the Holy Spirit, obviously, and the body is important. But it also, they concealed the marks of their circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. So they, they completely eradicated the, the ability to, their, to be set apart and different. Nobody likes being different, especially when there's a great protection and a great Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that can be enforced. If we just go along, then we'll get along. They allied themselves to the Gentiles and sold themselves to the power of evil. Once his kingdom had been firmly established, Antiochus was determined to become king of Egypt so that he might reign over both kingdoms. So he invaded Egypt with a massive force of chariots, elephants, and cavalry, supported by a large fleet. So they got it from the land and the sea. When he engaged Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, in battle, Ptolemy fled in fear before him amidst a great number of casualties, and the fortified cities in the land of Egypt were captured, and Antiochus plundered the kingdom. After his return from the conquest of Egypt in the year 143, so six years later, Antiochus advanced upon Israel and Jerusalem with a massive force, and in his arrogance he entered the sanctuary and removed the golden altar, the lampstand, the light with all its fixtures, the table for the loaves of offering, the libation cups and bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, and the crowns. He stripped off all the gold decorations on the front of the temple. He seized the silver and gold and precious vessels and all the hidden treasures he could find. He took everything of value, anything that had any value to him, 
out of the temple. Taking all this, he returned to his own country, having caused great bloodshed and boasted arrogantly of what he had accomplished. There was great mourning throughout Israel, and the rulers and the elders groaned. Girls and young men wasted away, and the beauty of the women waned. Every bridegroom raised up laments, and the bride sat mourning in her bridal chamber. The land trembled for its inhabitants, and in the entire house of Jacob was clothed in shame. Well, see, that's the thing. As soon as you start making common cause and you make capitulations to to somebody who is who is truly opposed to you and in, in, in your religious um, stance, then this is how it ends up. You know, it, it ends up there's nothing you you won't fight for, and they'll just take everything from you. They will plunder everything. They did this in in Germany during World War II. They plundered the churches. Then even Henry the uh, Eighth plundered. Uh, the monasteries when he closed them. But the thing is, is that once you make capitulation, once you begin to make compromises and make friends with the world, ultimately you lose everything. It will take everything because what it recognizes is it's not even important to them, that they were willing to give these things away. We've got to fight for things in the beginning. We can't give everything away in the beginning and then still hang on and pretend that we're going to have something worth fighting for later on. No, and I'm seeing it today. Often, I see it in uh, Christians who are uh, public Christians uh, who, who wear that banner on their sleeve and, and yet have capitulated completely to the spirit of the age. Um, it, it's and both sides can accuse the other of having done that thing. You know, with with Donald Trump, there were a lot of people who who criticized Christians who who wouldn't renounce him because they had capitulated to the spirit of the age because they get this bombastic guy who's in there, and, and then the other side then criticizes the those people uh, who, who were those critics um, because they had compromised themselves by, by making common cause in order to, to get along. And so they, they are going along, and, and so they can overlook things like abortion because they, they'll take that out and make it not the central issue in any given campaign. And I'm not saying that, that either side is right. I mean, I have a side. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that either side is right. We live in an imperfect world that's made up of imperfect choices, but the problem is that we can't compromise that. We have to be able to speak out. No matter which side we're on, we have to be able to speak out against the excesses of that side. So, it, but, but what happened was they decided to blend in, and what ended up happening was they had everything taken away from them because those things were no longer considered by anybody outside as something that was truly important. If you're willing to just give it away, then, then ultimately they'll take it. So in, in the gospel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come, and they, they decided to test Jesus to ask him for a sign from heaven. And he answered him, when it's evening, you say it's fair weather, for the sky is red in the morning. It'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. But how many signs do you need? I mean, that's what he's saying here when, when he says, you, you, you know how to interpret the signs about the weather, but you're failing alter, utterly to interpret the signs that I'm showing you in the healings and all the other things that Jesus was doing. The... Um, they, they wouldn't receive that sign. That's not the sign they wanted. They had a sign in particular they wanted, like the people in John 6 who had been fed one day, wanted to be fed the next day. And so Jesus said, no, no. I'm giving you plenty of signs. The sign you'll be given is the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection from the dead.
Jonah three days in the fish, Jesus three days in the tomb. And so then he left them and departed, and the disciples got to the other side. They'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be careful about what these people are doing. You need to listen carefully to what's going on and don't allow their skepticism to enter into your hearts. Don't allow them, either one of them, either of those groups, one who denies the resurrection completely and the other who are just nothing more than legalists who think this is all about what they do and they've forgotten the reality that it's all about what God has done. Don't allow that to infect your thinking. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. So they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus talks about the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and somehow or another they believe this has something to do with bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Don't you perceive? Don't you see the signs? Haven't you? Don't you see this? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand? I didn't speak about bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're teaching, in essence, a couple of different things. The Sadducees were uh, all about this life. They had um, denied the resurrection, so this life was all there was. They ain't no more. And that, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, so their Judaism had been compromised. The leaven of the Pharisees has, has way more to do with... Um, you, works. What you do is ultimately what matters. No, if that had been the truth, then God would never have entered into the covenant with Abraham the way that he did, requiring nothing of Abraham and everything of himself. It's only later that circumcision enters the picture. And so, the, and even then, the, this has never been about works. It's always been about God's grace, that he's the one who initiated the covenant. He's the one who keeps the covenant. So when you make it all about works and you make it all about legalism, then you've missed the entire Old Testament, to be honest with you. In the uh, Revelation passage today, John is hearing, he hears what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so what Babylon has devoured now the Lord has executed judgment on Babylon, and, and that, that judgment is true and just, and he has delivered the saints and avenged the blood of the servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. There's rejoicing over the defeat and the destruction of Babylon. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. A voice from the throne. Whose voice is this coming from the throne, calling forth the praise and the worship of God's people? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. This is the response to that call to worship. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds 
of the saints. Saints. So even here in the in the marriage of the Lamb, the bride, the uh, church has made herself ready, in and granted. Uh, she's been granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It had to be granted, right, to to her to be able to wear that because, you know, there used to be a tradition that the bride always wore white, and then there were people, I can certainly remember plenty of times when people, when I was a kid, would look askance and say, well, I don't know why she'd be wearing white. She's not pure. And so that that was the old tradition. And here, though, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So while the, the church may look like a mess. And this reminds me of the story of Joshua the high priest from the book of Zechariah who appears before the the Lord in um, filthy rags. And, and God just takes, and Satan accuses him, and then God says, just give him new clothes to wear. And that's exactly the, the image that's in view here. And that is, is that we know who we really are, but God, God credits to the church that purity that, that comes from the righteous deeds of the saints. And so it's not that the saints are perf- have reached some sort of state of perfection, but it does indicate that those deeds actually matter. The way that we live actually matters. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Well, there's only one Lamb. And we've just read this. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and so he'd be married to his church now that the church has been purified in a way. And so these are the true words of God. And so your blessing is you've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that you will be there and be among that number. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God period, end of sentence, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's a big statement. It's a big closer (laughs) to the lesson today, and that's the thing is that the church needs to come out of captivity and come out of compromise, And, and we're called to righteousness. We're called to align ourselves completely with him and away from the world's structures and the world's powers. And it's the testimony of Jesus and the perseverance in that testimony without compromising with the world that sets us apart as a church and as a people.